Well, last week I spent a lot of time encouraging everyone to get involved in a K group, and we talked about we're working through our mission statement, helping each other know and follow Jesus. And there's really no better way to help each other know and follow Jesus than to be in close relationships with one another. And just putting you in close proximity obviously doesn't make discipleship happen, but it does give you an opportunity to develop relationships that can turn into positive, pointing you to Jesus type relationships that'll help you and spur you on and encourage you. And so if you're not involved in a K group, Michelle and I'll be back at the book cart at the end of the service. We'd love to help you get connected to a group if you're not already. Uh, there's also a list in the lobby, one change on that list, though uh, Stephen and Allison Whitaker's group has changed location, so see him if you need to know where that new location is, but don't show up at his house on Wednesday night. And so that's uh, this week, K-Group start this Wednesday, and then next Sunday, so I hope you'll be involved in that. Uh, we're going to be back in the book of Ephesians, and as I said last week, this isn't a work straight through Ephesians. We've done that fairly recently, actually. And this is more, we're, we're looking at some different themes from the book because it's so rich and there's so much there. And so we're going to start off in chapter 6 and then we're going to work backwards. So chapter 6 of Ephesians, just one verse and we'll pray and then we'll talk. Ephesians 6.12, the Apostle Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we read verses like this, and it, it seems so much greater than our reality. It seems so much bigger than our day-to-day -day experiences. And God, we never have this insight, this ability to see what's truly going on in our world if it wasn't for your word and you speaking your word to give us this truth so that we can understand the battle that we're in. And God, I pray that you will allow us today to rise in the spirit, rise to the occasion of the situation that we find ourselves in today. And God, we know that Satan has always been at work and he continues to be at work, deceiving and leading many astray. And God, I pray that you'll help each one of us prepare our hearts now and confess our idolatry where we can easily put our minds on small, meaningless idols and miss out on the truth of your glory and your greatness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I had the privilege this last week to go back to see my parents up in West Virginia for just a few days, flew up, flew back, really quick trip. But while I was there, I was uh, running through the old neighborhood where I grew up, and nearby my parents' house there is a building that used to be the armory, the army reserve for the unit there in that area would meet at this location. It now has been changed over, and it's an elementary school. But it brought back memories of a time when I was in high school that my friend Chad Hall, who I graduated with, he decided to go into the army in what was called a split option kind of deal, where as a junior, after his junior year in high school, he would go through basic training and then he would be in the reserves, and then after a senior year, he'd finish up basic training and then go into the reserves, and then they would help pay for his college. And they had a deal working there where you had a buddy system. You could bring a guy along with you, and so he began to talk me into trying to get me to join up with him and be part of that. And so one Saturday afternoon, we went down to the armory, and we spent the afternoon there as with the other soldiers doing what I guess they did there at 
the, that armory, which was basically nothing, okay, honestly. And there was a lot of sitting around. There was a lot of talking. I saw zero drills, zero activity. I saw no rifles, no rifle range. It was literally just guys sitting around talking and spending the afternoon together. Now, I hope that's not indicative of all our reserves, uh, and it probably isn't. It was probably just the case at this one location. I hope so. But these guys were what we call weekend warriors, right? They go and they did their thing. And, and what was so shocking for a lot of these guys who were in these kind of programs at this time was the fact that around the time that I would have been in, which, by the way, I was too young to join up, and so I was unable to go with my friend Chad. But at this time, we had, I believe it was Desert Storm was the war that took place over in the Middle East. And at that time, they began to call up people who were in the reserves. And I remember knowing guys who were in there, and they were absolutely shocked and overwhelmed that they were being called up from their job as a mechanic or as a worker in a store or as a teacher to go across the world to fight in a war. In fact, many of them worked and tried to figure out how they could get out of this because I didn't sign up to be in a, like a real war. I'm just like in this for the weekends, right? This is what it's about, just going to the little deal every weekend and being part of that little group that meets over there in Ripley, West Virginia. But that wasn't the case. And many of these guys were deployed, and many of them did uh, tours of duty, and many of them made a huge impact. But the truth is, many were shocked and surprised by the fact that they were more than a weekend warrior. And here's the illustration, which is obvious. I believe many Christians have a weekend warrior mindset. That they feel like that this is the battlefield right here. Like, okay, I go and do my thing on Sunday. I do my thing on the weekend, maybe serve in children's ministry, maybe greet at the door, maybe I'm a deacon, I'm an usher, whatever. I go, and this is the battle, and then I go home. And then I go back to my real life and real world. And nothing could be further from the truth because the battle is not here in our seats. The battle is out there in the relationships with people who are unbelievers who you deal with every single day at work or in school. The battle is fearing God and keeping his commandments and staying focused on what really matters. And then what I'm going to talk about today is the battle is very much in your home. Helping each other know and follow Jesus in our home. The battle is in the home. The home is under attack. And many of you know this and you see it. And it's all over the place in the media that the home is being assaulted. Marriage is being assaulted. Very, our genders are being assaulted. And we're constantly under attack. And this is no accident. This is the work of Satan and his scheme. And he's worked throughout from the beginning till now. And he may change his tactics, but he never ceases to attack the home. And so let's re recap a little bit where we were last week because we are walking through this book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, basically Paul lays out the fact that you and I are the church and he's given us everything that we need in order to fight this battle that we're called to fight. In fact, in, there in Ephesians 1, he goes through this long list of things that is true about somebody who's in Christ. In Christ, we're blessed. In Christ, we're chosen. 
in Christ were declared holy, we're blameless in Christ, we're predestined in Christ, we've been adopted by Christ, and we're sons and daughters of God because of Jesus Christ. And at the end of chapter one, he says that all things have been put under the authority of Jesus Christ, and under that authority is the church, and these things are all for the benefit of the church. And so you are not the end in yourself. The fact that you're all of these things in Christ, that doesn't just like, oh, I feel good about myself. But you've been given all of those things and made who you are in Christ for the benefit of the church, to help each other know and follow Jesus. Now, as Paul typically does in his letters, the first part of the letter is filled with the theology. He's building the case showing what we, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. And then he transitions to the second half of the book where he makes it very practical. He brings it down to street level. And that's what happens in chapters 4 and 6. Paul turns to the practical. He turns to how our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, what we've been given in Christ, how that works its way into our relationships. But before we talk about those relationships, look at chapter 4. Skip over to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he says, this is all that's been done for you in Christ. Now walk, which is a metaphor in scripture for living your life. If you're following along in the NIV, it says, live your life in a way that honors Christ, that's worthy of Christ. And so it's Here's who you are, now live that out in your life. And this idea of worthy is the idea of matching up, or our actions should match our words, or as I like to say, just be who you are. Allow your inner convictions and your external actions to match up. It's what I talked about a few weeks ago in Psalms. It's having an undivided heart. And so Paul says to walk worthy of the calling which we've been given. And that calling ultimately is, as we sang, to glorify God. And as Sean mentioned, to live for him and knowing that God's will is for his glory and it's for our good, but it's not about us. It's about him and it's about what he's doing, what he's accomplishing. And so when Paul writes here in chapter six and he tells us about this spiritual war that's going on, here's what he's trying to get across to us, okay? It's not easy living for Jesus. It's not easy and carefree. It's not natural, so to speak, to live for Jesus. You've got enemies that are battling you every day. Not only Satan, who's real and truly battling against us as a church and as individuals, but we have the flesh inside of us that's constantly drawing us away. And we also have the world, the system of the world, as we can look around and see, that is anti-God and it's blatant in our face. And so we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. While that sounds crazy, it brings it into reality is the fact that there's something bigger going on than what we see with our eyes. Satan is real. He's really our enemy. He's an adversary, and he's deceiving people. He has been doing it since the Garden of Eden. He continues it now. And as the book called Think It Not Strange, and I've read from this before, but this quote's so amazing, I just have to use it again. The author writes this at the beginning of the book. He says, for 350 years, the church on America so American soil has enjoyed relatively little affliction for her fidelity to the scriptures. This nation, though, 
is an anomaly in church history. And those days seem to be passing more quickly than many of us expected. But panic would not be a Christian response. For 2,000 years, this has been what it means to identify with Christ in the world. The normal experience of those who follow a man who was crucified. Suffering for the gospel was not just tolerated in the early church, it was expected. And so what do we expect? We should expect that we're in a battle because we have an enemy. And Pastor John MacArthur said this back in 2008, quite a few years ago. He said, if you think somehow there's going to be a turnaround in America, forget it. Forget it. We're going down the path of immorality at such a warped speed, we're not going to turn around. This is Romans 1. We've been turned over by God to the consequences of our choices, and Satan is having a field day in the system, and we are all inundated by it. So if that's the truth, if MacArthur is correct that we're not turning this around, there's probably not going to be a revival to change the, the path that America's on. The question is, how should we respond? Because that's a great and practical question, and that's a question I have to make every time I pick up my electronic device and decide if I'm going to get my news, if I'm going to be on Twitter, if I'm going to go and see what everybody else thinks about this current uh, thing that's going on in the world. What am I doing with this? What's my response? Because if that is more and more my response, which I do go check the news, and I go on my Twitter occasionally, and I actually posted my Twitter for the first time in a couple, couple years, uh, or at least a year yesterday or the day before, a very small article that I reposted. I really honestly wanted to see if I get put in Twitter gel. I wanted to see if they would ban me from Twitter because I thought that would be like a badge of honor, actually, because I don't use the thing much anyway. But the point is, what do we do with this? Because if you go to these places again and again and again, all you're going to do is get angry, bitter, mad, and you're going to take it out on the very people that we're called to be ministering to. We'll talk about that next week. And so my response today to this is we need to turn and put our energies in our homes. We need marriages that make known the gospel. And our children are the first audience impacted by that. We are called to help them know and follow Jesus. So a marriage, make the gospel known, first audience, the children and we need to help them know and follow Jesus. Helping each other know and follow Jesus in our home, city, and world. So the first thing I want us to remember about this is our marriage is our mission. Remember the mission of your marriage. What is the mission of your marriage? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to look in chapter 5 for quite a while here. Chapter 5, verse 31, 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul is making an argument here that your marriage, your Christian marriage, is a picture of the gospel. That's your mission your husband, your wife, your relationship together should be a picture, an illustration of the gospel. 
So we can gripe and complain about the direction of our country and complain about all the things that are happening, or we can say, hey, honey, yes, dear, we're an, we're an illustration of the gospel to this world. And so us getting mad about everything that's happened maybe doesn't really paint the good picture about what the gospel is. Let's allow our marriage to be a clear picture of Jesus and what he did for us. And so we need married couples who truly understand that their marriage is about Jesus and his church. And his church. It's not about your happiness. It's not about your fulfillment. It's not about your fun. It's about Jesus and his church. It's a picture of Jesus' love for his bride. Look at verse 32. It refers to Christ and the church. And Satan is working hard to destroy that. He wants to destroy the symbolism of love between Christ and the church. He wants to destroy that. And that could be through a divorce. It could be through constant arguing, bickering. Or it could just be from lack of focus, lack of purpose. It could be from so many different ways that he's impacting your marriage. But he wants to destroy the symbolism of the love of Christ for his church. So what is God's plan so that we can do this successfully? How do two sinners stay on mission together? Because it's not the natural course and direction. Well, skip down to verse 21. Before he starts this section on relationships with, between married couples, he kind of introduces this with this idea of mutual submission. He says, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he said, if this marriage is going to work, and any relationship, so to speak, is going to work, there has to be this servant attitude toward one another. There can't be this selfishness that it's all about me and what I want. We're called to a servant attitude that follows God and his order and his design. And so we work practically for the good of the other in the marriage. Because selfishness, plain and simple, we know this, wrecks havoc on a marriage. And far too many couples are the scene of the battle rather than out there fighting the battle. The home is the battlefield rather than the place where the couple says, we're going to go out and fight this battle together. And we're going to work together in the home to fight this battle together. So rather than fighting the enemy, couples are battling and fighting against each other. Tim Keller says this. He says, only if you have learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit will you have the power to face the challenges of marriage. So there has to be this mutual submission and this mutual idea of service toward one another. Now, as we look at Paul's commands today, and as we talk about Scripture, and we talk about submission, we talk about headship, and we talk about the home and children obeying, as we talk about these things, these things are big, broad strokes, and I realize that. But the beautiful thing is that Grace Church is more than a sermon that you hear on Sunday morning. It's helping each other know and follow Jesus. And let me just say, and I'm such a just strong proponent of our marriage mentoring program. Because not only have Michelle and I mentored multiple couples and seen really, really great things that happen through it, but also the fact that I understand my own tendencies towards selfishness and how quickly we can lose focus on the mission of our marriage and how that the little things in a marriage oftentimes are the things that Satan uses to, to sow the discord and the strife and the discontentment. 
And what I love about the marriage program is it specifically targets your marriage in areas where you're struggling so that maybe you, these big, broad strokes, you say, I agree with those things, but the little details need some help. Our marriage mentoring program steps in and we help each other because it's not just Michelle and I, and it's not just Mitch and Megan. We have other couples who are trained to do marriage mentoring. And I would just like for you to hear from one of the couples who went through marriage mentoring talking about practically how it helped their marriage. Go ahead, Mason, and roll that video. So we went through the marriage mentorship program. This mentorship program helped us figure out how to bring out our weaknesses, bring them out into the open, take them and work on them. Really just brought some things to light that you didn't really think were a problem. You thought, you think everything's going good, but it could always be better. You can always pursue each other better. Marriage mentoring for us was an opportunity for us to learn how to communicate with each other in a safe environment with friends who were actually able to be our safety rails and bumpers while we fumbled through communication and they were able to point us back on the right track when we lost uh, focus of the issue and kind of gently redirected us and how to have conversations with each other that were beneficial and not destructive towards each other and not attacking one another but more approaching an issue and being able to work around that and to say how I was feeling and then to hear how he was feeling and then come back to it. A lot of times I can be thinking of my response to what Kayla's telling me and not really hearing what she's saying. It just kind of laid out basic civility rules. <laughs> basic con <laughs> rules of conflict. I would totally recommend anybody who's married or maybe even engaged um, dating um, to seek out this marriage mentorship, this, this help, because when you think you've got things figured out is probably when you need help the most. It was an uncomfortable eight weeks, but a fruitful one. You know, just like pruning the branches off the fruit tree allows it to grow new branches that yields greater fruit. One thing that Keller and Kayla doing that video, I appreciate them doing that, helps us understand is that maybe your marriage isn't just like next week you're gonna be in divorce court, but you need some, just some tweaking, some, some help, some encouragement to get back on mission. Because it's not just, again, it's not just about having a marriage that you, you function together pretty well and you're pretty in sync with one another, but it's about being on mission for Jesus Christ. And so we work on these things so that our marriage can glorify him and point people to the picture of the gospel. So it starts with this mutual submission, but Paul goes further than that. He gives instructions for how a godly home should operate. Verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now this instruction seems completely outrageous to our society today, right? And honestly, the more outrageous it sounds to our society, the more eager I am to preach it because the society we know isn't going the right direction, right? And the things that we've been hearing culture say, do this and don't do that, and that's silly and old-fashioned, let me ask you practically, is that stuff working? Absolutely not. 
We're, I mean, it, it's headed so quickly in the wrong direction that it makes us run to God and say, God, what's your instructions for the home? What's your instructions for marriage? And so he lays this out, and, and, he, and he gives us his formula for how the chain of command should work in the home. And, and basically, straight out of the scripture, follow along, he says that, that the wife is to submit to the husband, verse 22, just as they are submitting to the Lord, as to the Lord. Just as the church is subject to Christ, the wife is to be in submission to her husband. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. So as in any organization that's functional, you're going to have a chain of authority. And in God's economy, he says, I want the home ran this way. That the wife is in submission to the husband, and, Christ, and the husband is in submission with Christ, and the children are in submission to their parents. And that's what he has laid out for order in the home, and two people are not going to agree on everything. I don't care how close a relationship you have with your spouse and how good you work together, there's going to be times when you're not going to be perfectly aligned. You may be, you both just, like Keller and Kayla, you desire to follow Christ, do what he wants, but there's times when there's just going to be, to be a decision made, there's going to be a standoff, what happens? God says, the man makes the decision, the husband makes the decision, not because he's smarter, not because he's more valuable to God, but it's his order, it's the way that he set up and designed the home to happen. And headship ship and marriage, as past generations have so poorly illustrated, it's not about dominance and submission is not about putting up with abuse. The head of the household is to be the role model for everyone else. He is to be the spiritual leader. And so it's this loving leader. It's in love, not through coercion or manipulation or dominance. It's through love. He's a loving leader. And, and Paul reiterates this in verses 25 through 30 where he writes again and again. He says, love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her from, by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. If you listen to the words that Paul wrote there and what I read, Paul uses twice as many words to speak to the husband as he does the wife. Twice as many words. There's got to be a reason for that, because we know the tendency is selfishness. And it's not to love your wife as you love your own body. It's to love your wife oftentimes to see what you can get from it or make your life better or easier. And he says, this is sacrificial love like Christ loved the church. So the wife submits to a lover, not to a boss, not to somebody who's going to be a dictator, to a lover. And the husband exercises his authority as head of the family, with the kind of love Jesus displayed while ruling over his church. So spiritual leadership is not about demeaning behavior, and submission is not about, about being weak or mindless or incompetent. 
It's about God's order and his design for the home. And I see it practically. And many of you do too in your own marriages. I see it dealing with couples all the time. There's constant power struggles going on. There's constant battles going on. And Jesus says, I want your home to be a picture of my love for the church. And I've given you an order. I'm giving you the chain of command for this to happen. I'm giving you wisdom in my word for this to happen. Look to me. Respond to me. But we see so many times a husband is unwilling to step up and lead spiritually in any way, shape, or form. Wives are unwilling to submit, and they're unwilling to work together to understand each other and and to be one and to exemplify Jesus Christ. And so down in verse 33, Paul's summing up this this, this, uh, section. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So husband, love your wife. Men in your marriage, do you act lovingly toward your wife, honestly? Are you loving your wife the way that Christ loved the church? Are you loving your wife the way that you love yourself? And wives, are you submitting to your husband? Are you respecting your husband? Are you doing that not just in words and not just in action, but in body language and gestures? Are you submitting the way that God planned and told us to do? That's one thing, again, I love about this mentoring program. It, it kind of goes along with the book, Love and Respect. Many of you have gone through that. Our K group has done that study. Others have. And the people who were behind the Love and Respect book are the same people who are behind the mentoring program. And it's this idea of this crazy cycle that exists in marriages. When you have a husband who's unloving to his wife, this is so practical, unloving to his wife, the wife typically responds in a very disrespectful way to her husband, and then he calls it this crazy cycle that just goes on and on. And so disrespect, I'm going to take that very personal, I don't like what you just said, I don't like the way you said that, I don't like the way you rolled your eyes, so I'm going to respond back to you to get even with you or to make my point clear, and I'm going to do it in a very unloving way. And the authors of these books talk about now this is just a crazy cycle that we get on. And the marriage mentoring program talks a lot about that and deals with that and comes up with what's called a a fight plan, which I love that. And some of you may think, fight, that's horrible. No, all marriages are going to have fights. They're going to have conflict. It's important to learn how to deal with the conflict and how to work through these conflicts in a Christ-like way so you come through it as better friends, more eager to show Christ, to the world and to others in the church. So people can look to your marriage and say, I see Jesus in that marriage. Yeah, they're not perfect, but I see Jesus in that marriage. And so this idea of love and respect, and the man feels disrespected, he's going to react unlovingly, and the woman feels unloved, she's going to react disrespectfully, and this craziness happens. Now let me just say this, because many of you say, well, I went through that book, I did that, and it hadn't got much better, all right? It's, it's Look, this isn't a magic formula. Paul's not writing to say, you know what, do these two things and every problem in your marriage will be solved. But I love what the author of Love and Respect, what he said in a video, and I wrote this down, he said, yes, there could be major cancers in your marriage, but love and respect is the food and water. You die without it. Love and respect is the food and water. So yes, maybe there's that major cancer. There's that affair that happened five years ago. Or there's this habit that one of the spouses is involved in or this thing they're doing that just is a disruption or this attitude that constantly permeates everything. 
There could be a cancer there. But without love and respect to deal with that cancer, you're not going to get anywhere. And so Paul says there has to be this mutual submission. There has to be this love and respect. There has to be this recognition of the chain of command that God has created in the marriage. And so human marriages were a signpost that God has given about his relationship with his church. It's a very visual aid for people to see in his redemptive work of him pursuing people and bringing people back to God, reconciling people back to God. And your marriage, does it picture that? Does it illustrate that? Does it show that? Or do people look at you and think, well, that's dysfunctional. Well, Jesus must be dysfunctional because they claim to know Jesus and their marriage sure isn't working very well. And God lays out the pattern. So you're under attack. You have a mission, and God has given you the formula for putting things in order in your home in order to fulfill that mission. He's given you everything that you need. And then the second thing, real quick, and we'll be finished. The second thing in our home, we need to intentionally disciple our children. We need to intentionally disciple our children. Because of time, I'm going to skip down to verse 4 of chapter 6. Paul writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So he picks on fathers, the spiritual leaders of the home, and he says, Fathers, don't discipline without love, but don't love without discipline, right? It's so easy, dads, isn't it, to fall into one of those categories. We're heavy-handed, we're strong, we're disciplinarians, but there's very little compassion and love toward our children. And then there's the fathers who are the permissive, cool dads, right? I just love my kids, but I don't do any discipline. We'll let mom handle that or the school handle that. Neither one of those work. He says, bring them up in this way. And then he goes on to say, hold on one second, my iPad just crashed here. Let me get back there. He says, to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. And that's this intentional discipleship that we're talking about here. Let me ask dads here. Honestly, do you have a warm relationship with your children? Think about your children. Think about your relationship with your children. Do you have a warm relationship with them? Are you intentionally discipling them? Are you intentionally praying with them and, and reading the word with them? There was this massive study that was done involving four generations, started in the, in the 70s and went on. And get this, the single most important factor in successively, in successively passing on our faith to the next generation, to our children, was this. I was shocked when I read this. A warm relationship with the parents, and in particular, the father. A warm relationship with the parents, and in particular, with the father. So dads, this call to be the, the head of the home, the spiritual leader, isn't all about perks and being in charge, is it? It's about being serious about your responsibility as the head of the household because you answer to Jesus Christ. You answer straight to him. Are you intentional with your children? I see so many dads and, and, they, and they can't pray in front of their children. They feel awkward. They don't know what to say. They can't say the word Jesus in front of their children. Their mouths just freeze up and they don't know how to respond in a way that's gentle with their kids. 
And that's a problem because God laid out the way that he wants the home to operate. And it's under attack. And just sending your kids to church or sending your kids to a Christian school or just occasionally praying a meal prayer is not the end-all, be-all of discipleship. It's being able to look your kids in the eye. It's being able to pray with your kid, put your arm around your son. It's being able to talk to them about what really matters in life. And I'm afraid that doesn't happen a lot because there's really not a lot of death in here. And as was mentioned, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if the heart's empty, if the heart is pursuing other gods, if the heart is about other things other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, then of course it's going to be difficult to get that to come out of your mouth. And so it starts with Jesus and knowing Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus. So sum all this up. Our head, your home is under attack. Your home, okay? I know you look around and say the home is under attack, marriage is under attack, children are under attack, but your home specifically is under attack. And the heart, this is practical. Men, we have a five-week Life Prep U class starting up called Family Shepherds. Where's Richard? Is Richard in here? I saw him a minute ago. Richard, stand up right there. Stand up. This guy right here is leading it. There he is. And Brennan Webb. I won't have him stand. He's too tall to stand. It's embarrassing how tall he is compared to me. But he, uh, he's leading as well. And these guys are two dads who are great fathers, not perfect fathers, I'm sure you would say, but great fathers who are going to help pass on some very practical skills of being a shepherd to your kids to help guide and lead you to help each other know and follow Jesus in the home. They're going to instruct you and help you see how you can better do that. And then hands, really practically. It's hard to parent your children if your marriage is in a mess. It's hard to parent your children and help lead them intentionally in discipleship if your marriage isn't about the mission. And so we got avenues here, two very clear avenues to work on the home. So the next time you want to open up Facebook and start complaining about how bad this world is, I want you to think about these two opportunities, father shepherds, family shepherds, marriage mentoring. Let's do something about the problem. Let's be the solution, not just be good at pointing out the, the, the problems. Let's be part of the solution. And let's start where we're at in our home and work out to our city and to our world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, and thank you that he gives us purpose and meaning, and that your word gives us such specific application to the gospel, that we can truly take the truth that you've given us here today, and we can take it home and unpack it and use it to bring glory to you and live out our mission. God, I pray for single moms, single dads, and, and as they sit here today and they maybe feel like partially left out or greatly left out from this conversation, God, help them not to feel that way. God, help them to see that you give them everything they need to raise their children and, and provide for them because you've given them the Holy Spirit to provide for them what they need to live this life for you. And God, pray for those who are hurting and those who are just feel distant from you or those who are in just a, a tumultuous cancer-filled marriage that has so many issues and problems that this idea of love and respect seems so unrealistic, God. I pray you will help them to 
trust you, depend upon you, and know that your grace and your new morning mercies are there for them. And God, that you will provide for them what they need to illustrate Jesus, sometimes if it means loving a spouse who's not very lovable. And God, I pray that you'll encourage us. Use us to be the church to one another. Help us to not just be weakened warriors, but help us to be about the battle, going to the battle, and making a difference in our homes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.